Exodus 20, 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image of any likeness of any kind that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. So in this verse, I mean, this may be an interesting passage, maybe a weird passage to kind of go through. Uh, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, it'd kind of be like a, well, duh, don't make statues and worship them. Uh, but the call for us is something totally different. I think God in this passage is begging us to turn to him. God is warning us that throughout our lives, we're going to be tempted to take our eyes off of him and worship things that cannot love us back. God is showing us something in these first couple of commandments, that all sin, all evil, all brokenness comes from our heart's averseness to seeing God for who he really is and worshiping him as thus. And God is crying out to us, turn to me, love me, worship me, everything we say and do reveals what we really worship. And God's call in these passages to worship the only one who is worthy, worship the only one who can truly give you everything your heart deeply longs for. Tim Keller says it like this, everybody worships, the only choice you get is what to worship. And this morning we're left with a choice, what is it that we're gonna worship? And the real question underneath that is, what can what you worship really deliver on its promise to satisfy that internal longing from your innermost being? Can it hold all your greatest expectations? Can it really deliver for you? Can it hold up under the weight of everything you put on it? At the end of the day, the question is, is what you worship, is it worthy? So let's pray real quick. God, thank you for bringing these people here this morning. We place our trust in you. And God, in this morning, uh, we just ask that you be in the midst of all this and that you start something right now. You, you would begin to move in our hearts to make us true worshipers of you. God, I pray that you would create something in this place, in this church, in this little room right now, something that will last an eternity, and that you would push us out, you would help us to see the things that we don't recognize that we worship, and you would call us out of that and call us to you, because you are the only one who can really give us what we truly long for, God. I ask that you do that this morning. We need your Holy Spirit to move, not just this morning, in this whole thing, and this everything we do, God. We need you. We are desperate for you. And Lord, I pray that you would move and that you would get the glory for what you do in this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week we talked real quickly about kind of, whoa. We talked real quickly uh, about what we're going to be doing in these first few meetings. Um, I really want to set the tone for kind of everything we're doing. So what we're doing is we're kind of going over what our core values are. And if you weren't here last week, we told a story about 
uh, a date I went on in which uh, around Halloween in which I dressed up like Richard Simmons. And as I walked the streets of Kansas City, I was not the only one dressed up, but as I was walking the streets, people felt the need to point at me and say, it's Richard Simmons. It's like, yeah, you got it. Nailed it. It's pretty obvious. But as I thought about that, I kind of thought about when people point at the anchor church, what are they going to call out? What are they going to say? Who are we as a church? And last week, we talked about how my prayer is that we would be a people who are first and only defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would build on the gospel as our foundation and build with the gospel as the way in which we actually do ministry. And, and so secondly, the second core value that I want to talk about is how we want to be lifestyle worshipers, how that in everything we do, in every action, every word, and every motive would be towards worshiping God for who he is. And so I'm at this point in my life where I'm dreaming a lot, whether it's, it's kind of at this like mid-20s stage where you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life. Some of us are kind of there. And you're thinking about all these things that you're going to do, obviously with the church plant, like we're dreaming about all the different stuff that God could possibly do. And it's, it's really funny that we kind of look back at our younger selves and we see kind of what we really wanted to do with our lives. Like we wanted to be a firefighter or a ballerina or an NBA superstar. And then we get to this point in our lives and we look back and be like, I didn't necessarily match up to that. And so what we do is we get older, we make a bucket list. How Have we all made bucket lists? Or at least I haven't, don't have an official bucket list, but I threw some things on my bucket list. Stuff like running a marathon. That would be sweet. I want to try to do that this year. We'll see what happens. Go skydiving. I want to go to Europe. Some of you jerks have already been there. Um, <laughs> and if I'm in, it, and I'm not saying for sure this is on my bucket list, but running with the bulls. Like if, I mean, if I wouldn't maybe go out of my way to do it, but if I were in Spain on the day, I could maybe be convinced, let's be honest. Um, but my biggest, the top thing on my bucket list, and I swear to God on this, is travel to space. Like if commercial space travel ever became a thing, I would do stop at nothing to get there. Like I would sell your kidneys on the black market. I don't care. Uh, I would do whatever it takes um, because can you imagine being on the moon? I mean, it's like the ultimate trump card. Like everyone else is like, well, I want to climb Mount Everest, but like I want to explore the ever-expanding, never-ending emptiness of space. Like I want to get so high that I'm like showing out of the Earth's atmosphere, and your little mountain looks like a speck of dust. I mean, for the rest of your life, you could look up at the moon and be like, I walked on you. You ain't got nothing. But <laughs> regardless of your bucket list items. Um, we have dreams in us. And some of those dreams are a little more trivial, and some of them are more life-altering, like my dream to go to the moon. Um, but other desires are, are deeper, and some are trivial. But I think if we were to really unravel kind of our deepest dreams, our deepest longings, that we may be able to determine what it is that we really Love. There are things that we dream of, things that we sacrifice to gain, things we live our lives to accomplish, and that's what we long for. That's what we love. And in this terminology, that's what we worship. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's things we're terrified of. We have nightmares, things we're scared to lose, things we worry about. 
The things we're scared of losing are in the same way of our dreams. They are the things we love. And if we were to truly analyze what it is that we dream of, the things we long for, the things we're scared of losing, we can really determine what it is we worship. And if we can unearth that, the question we really need to answer is, is what you worship worthy? Our verses today, they warn us against placing our ultimate affections towards anything outside of God himself. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under earth. You should not bow down or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God. And, and what I think is funny is even looking at it now is that he preemptively says, hey, I'm the God who saved you out of Egypt. Don't turn from me. It's really funny. We look at these verses and we're like, we don't really, we just pass over them because it's like, yeah, we don't worship a statue. But what these verses are telling us is there's something a lot deeper. We think we need to move on to like, all right, well, God, I don't have a statue. So like, let's, let's move on to something we really need to discuss, like my worry or my anger or my lust or whatever it is. We think we don't need to be told about idolatry because it seems outdated. But what these verses are telling us is so much deeper These commandments are telling us something John Calvin said millennia after Moses. He says, our hearts are idol factories. And God created us to worship. And because of that, our hearts tend to worship things outside of God. Things God created instead of God himself. Romans 125 says it this way. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the essence of sin. This is kind of the root of everything that pulls us down. This is the cause of all the brokenness we see in our lives and in the world. We've longed for the creation over the creator. We want God's stuff instead of God himself. And the things we worshiped could not hold up under the expectations we placed on it. Sin at its very root is idolatry. The core of sin is worshiping the created things over the creator. And God's telling us in these first commandments, none of those things are worthy. Only I am worthy of your worship. Only he is able to satisfy those innermost longings. Our hopes and our dreams, they can't really hold us when reality hits and we wake up. But everything would change if we, if you personally and we as a body of believers were to truly leverage our entire lives as worship to God. I mean, can you imagine a church, whether it be 30, 300, 3,000, whose greatest love is for God himself, who truly worship God with every single aspect of their life. If a group of people leveraged every dollar, every hour they made in order to glorify God and to love their neighbors and to bring hope to those around us what would it look like if the big c church actually became worshipers of god if jesus wasn't just a check mark you needed to make once a week in church but it became the sole driving purpose of your family of your work your career your entire life i mean i've been thinking a lot about looking at our lives less like a to-do list and more like an opportunity 
What if, what if we really looked at our lives and saw way more than a nine to five and catching up on Netflix? What if we leveraged it to do something big? I would submit that our world would look a lot different if we all became worshipers of God, and God knows that. And that's why he tells us this. He says, take your eyes off the idols of this world and worship me alone. Keep your worship on the one who is worthy of it. Because this is what is best for us. This is what we were created for. This is where your real life and real purpose can be found, bound up in Christ. So what we really need to do tonight is to ask the same question that Jack Black asks Ron Burgundy when he punts his dog off a bridge. What do you love? What do you love? Because what you love is what you worship. And what you worship is your God. We need to realize that we're all worshipers. We are all always worshiping. We were made to worship God, but we're always worshiping something. We were made to love, so we're always loving something. But the question is, is what you worship worthy? Who's seen the Minions movie? I know you have with all those kids. (laughs) It's kind of the origin story of how those little despicable me, little tiny yellow pill-shaped things, like... Can you imagine whoever like drew the art up for that? What, what a lazy, just, yeah, just make it a circle with a face. It's fine. Um, but the narrator of the movie Minions kind of tells us about the origins of the Minions and kind of what's underneath the surface, what's their common goal. Their common goal is to serve the most despicable master they can find. And the narrator talks about how finding a boss was easy, but keeping a boss was really hard. They start to follow around a T-Rex and to serve it, do it at once, but he ends up falling off a cliff because he's not very smart, and they're left alone. And then they find a caveman. They start to serve him and follow him around, but he gets eaten by a bear. And throughout history, it shows over and over how the minions continue to try to find something they could serve that would fulfill their purpose, that could give them what they were longing for. And as I saw that, I was like, man, we are a lot like the minions. We are constantly chasing anything in order to find someone or something who can give us what we long for. And until we find out who we were made to serve, whatever we chase will eventually let us down. Just like the minions, we too are all worshipers. So what is it that you long for, really? What is it that you chase after? What is it that you serve? What is it that you sacrifice for? What is it that you worship? And is it worthy of that worship? Because we are all always worshiping. And world-renowned and critically acclaimed writer David Foster Wallace says it this way. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally leave you. Worship power, 
And you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Wallace says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. And even though this great writer could verbalize this way more eloquently and succinctly than I can, he too worshiped something. And when the darkness surrounded him, it could not hold him. It could not keep him. He hanged himself in his garage only a few years after saying this. Something, whatever it was he worshiped, ate him alive. There is nothing outside of Christ himself for himself that is worthy of your worship. And there's nothing outside of Christ that can withstand the pressure of your entire life. And I know this kind of seems maybe like a 10,000-foot view, and you can't really see how it relates to your own personal life, but we need to see that idolatry is at the root of all the things we consider sin. These commandments come first, not because it fits logically, but because it's where all sin starts. I mean, if you really think about it, don't, don't you think it's kind of funny how us modern, middle-class Americans struggle so much with worry? I mean, we live in a time and a place where even those under the poverty level would be considered royalty in years past. And then those of us who are in the middle class who have, like, cell phones and air conditioning, are you kidding? People in the past would be like, those people have it made. And still, we do nothing but worry. Sometimes you can't go to bed because you're just running numbers and thinking about budgets and, like, worried about what would happen happen if you lost your job and most of us have never even wanted for a meal and the reason we worry like that is because the root of worry is not that we don't have enough stuff no matter how much you get there's always going to be that worry inside you the root of your worry is probably that you long for just a little bit of control we worship control and we don't struggle with like laziness or whatever it is going out and partying or wasting our time with entertainment because we're stressed out. It's because we have an idol called comfort. And we just long to be able to sit back and relax and not have anything around us go bad. We long and we worship comfort. And I just want to say we're going to be a church that actively fights that. Because there's a lot of churches in this city who, who have the welcome home as their catchphrase. And, and that's fine. But here at the Anchor Church, this is never going to be your home. There is no place on this earth that is your home. Here at the Anchor Church, we want to agitate you. We want to make you get out. We don't want to let you lean back in a lazy boy and get comfortable. No. We're a church on mission, moving to do things. We want to get uncomfortable. God needs to shake us awake, not let us lean back in a recliner. That's not the point of church. So whether, whatever it is, whether it's you worship comfort or security or like approval or power or any of these other kind of deeper things, we tend towards them and it tends to control us. As David Foster Wall says, it's insidious. It kind of sneaks under the surface without us even realizing it because we tend to think that our main problem is like our anger. But the thing we need to realize is that we only get angry because we're trying to control the situation. Man, 
What would it look like if we were to really unearth these deeper things and learn how to live for God instead? I mean, we don't need to learn how to be more disciplined. We need to see that we worship something called comfort. So as soon as we stop worshiping comfort, we're going to go out and do the things we're called to do because we're not worried about being uncomfortable. And the question we need to think about is what you worship worthy. I mean, has there ever been enough vacation days? No. I mean, have you ever got enough Christmas presents on Christmas to where like, well, I'm good now. I don't need anything else. That's the point. It cannot fully and finally satisfy you. Why do we think and focus on these things so much? It's funny how our minds work. I mean, the grass is always greener. If you kind of track yourself through your life, you're in high school, and you cannot wait to get out of high school and go to college to get a little bit of freedom. Classes start at like 10 a.m., and you're like, that will be the life. And then you kind of get into college, and it's fine for a couple years, but then you're like, I think I'm ready to be done with school. But then you get out of college, and you're just like, I'm lost. I don't know what to do with my life. I'm like, okay, well, if I get a career, then I'll have a little bit of purpose. And then you start working in your career and you're like, ah, that didn't quite get it. What I really need is I need, I need something to work for so I can get a family. And then you start, you get your spouse and you're like, this is cool for a while. And they're like, well, what we really need is a baby that will make us happy. And then we get babies and they're whining and crying. We're like, we can't wait till these kids move out of the house. And then there's just nothing in the house and it's quiet and as you drift towards retirement, all you do is long to go back to the days you longed to get out of. We spend our entire lives chasing after the wind, trying to catch it with butterfly nets, and it just slips through our fingers. And God's trying to tell us, don't fall into that trap. Follow me, trust in me, and in me you will find all the answers to the deepest longings of your soul. Because here's the thing is idols, things that we serve, they demand we work for them. They are slave drivers. We work for them. We chase after them. We sacrifice for them. And still they leave us empty. They cannot hold what we place on them. And that's why the gospel is the cure for idolatry because idols say this, your life for mine, meaning you give your life and maybe you can have me. You give your life at work, you sacrifice your family to work all the time, and then maybe you can get a little bit of achievement, you maybe can get a raise, maybe you can move up the corporate ladder, whatever it is. Idols say, work for me and I, maybe I'll give you some of me. Idols say, your life for mine, but the gospel says, my life for yours. Jesus on the cross says, I've given you my entire life so that you can have all of me. I, idols say your life for mine. The gospel says my life for yours. Jesus poured himself out so that we could have all of him in his fullness. And in that fullness, we find everything that we were made for. And that's what Jesus offers us this morning. When we're confronted with a holy God who loves us, not in spite of our sin, but even in the midst of it, we will find a love that reorients our nightmares and reorients our dreams, reorients our angers, reorients what we give our entire lives to. When we encounter Christ as he is, our hearts will be transformed and his love 
for us will compel us to love him back, to worship him. And I can't think of a better example than John 4 that tells a story of a woman. And we don't know much about her history or her background, and I think that's kind of purposeful because this is a story about a Samaritan woman, but really it's our story too. As Jesus was traveling to Galilee, he stopped to sit on the well. And as when his disciples went away, a Samaritan woman approached, and Jesus asks this woman for a drink from the well. And we know from history that we can't overstate kind of the disdain, the hate that burned between the Jews and the Samaritans at this time. And then not only that, but it's really inappropriate for a Jewish man to be talking to a woman like this alone. But Jesus still asks the woman, would you get me a drink? And she comes back with a rational response like, say what now? What? Why would you ask me for a drink? You know this, you shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus says to her, but if you know who I was and who I am, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. And kind of in church now, we're like, oh, well, isn't that adorable? But this woman lived in the present. And she's, she's basically just says, what are you talking? Like, what, what is this nonsense coming out of your mouth? How can you give me water when you don't even have a pail? And Jesus retorts again in a Jesus way. He says, everyone who drinks of me will never thirst again. And, and the woman responds, well, it, I, I don't want to have to come up to this well every day. Can you give me this water? She's still not necessarily getting it. So Jesus pulls out some Jesus stuff and does some Jedi mind tricks. He's never met this poor woman. And he says, go and tell your husband and bring him to me and then I'll, I'll tell you. And she responds, yeah, I don't have one. Jesus goes, yeah, I know. You've had five, and the man you live with now isn't your husband. And this woman realizing, like, wait, how do you know this? I've never met you. She says something that's kind of funny. She goes, I can see you're a prophet. Well, no kidding. You just, like, read her entire life. After all this unfolds, she asks about worship. She says, hey, where are we to worship? He says, you know, our, our ancestors, they told us all these things about where to worship and about how to worship. Hey, you, you're telling me all this stuff. Why don't you tell me how and where to worship? And Jesus responds, man, you're asking the wrong question. You are worshiping. You're all always worshiping. You ask how and when we're to worship. The right question is who or what we are to worship and we see at the end of this story a woman who understands what Jesus is trying to tell her as she runs back to her town that she came from in the midst of being a social outcast she runs around the town screaming hey come and see this man there's this guy up here who told me everything I ever did come and see this Jesus come and see him look at him and this is what it looks to live a looks like to live a lifestyle of worship Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 31, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So that means one thing for us as Christians, for those of us who believe in Christ, for those of us who've been radically changed by him, whatever we should do, whatever we do, we should do it saying, come and see the man. Just as this woman ran around the town and said, come and see him, come and see him. We too should live our lives as a way to point to Jesus say, come and see the man who changes everything. If somebody sees how you spend your money, how you spend your time, like, man, you're a really generous person with all those things. Like, yeah, you should come and meet the man who changed everything. Even if you're at Oklahoma Joe's, you're eating a Z-man, your response should be to your dinner guest, like, man, isn't it awesome that there's a 
God who not only gives us food for nutrition but makes it taste like this? You have to come and see him. And the reason we worship like this is because when you lose your job, you can respond, come and see the man who gives me purpose even when I don't have a job to do. When things politically seem like they've gone off the rails and the whole world is in chaos, you can say, come and see the man who is still in control. When tragedy strikes, you get sick. You can say, come and see the man who calls himself the great physician who that even whether he cures me of my sickness or not, he has cured my greatest sickness, which is my sin. Or when your spouse dies, you have to heap a shovel full of dirt onto a casket of someone you love. You can say, come and see the man who rose from his own grave to promise us that one day he would wipe these tears from my eyes. The man who came rising from his own grave so that we could live with him forever. This is how we live a lifestyle of worship. This is how we find fullness. This is how we can be set free from idolatry when we look at the man who changes everything. When we worship the only being that can be for us everything it promises. When we worship the one who is worthy. In this story, Jesus entered into a scandalous situation with a scandalous woman and gave scandalous grace. And we are that woman. That is our situation. And that is the grace he offers us again tonight, this morning. Jesus, when he encounters the woman at the well, first he says, look, I know you've not followed God. I know you've done all these things. I know you, you've, you've built up this idol of other men. I know you've been longing for acceptance. And he points out her brokenness, really gets down to the heart of her shame. And in verse 25 in John 4, the woman says, I know that there is one who can fulfill me. I know there's one who's worthy. I know there's one that's going to come, that's going to make all the things that are broken in my life right. I know God has promised that he would send a Messiah who will rid me of my shame and give me a new life. And in verse 26, Jesus says, I am he. And tonight, maybe he's pointing out something in your own life to where, like, you realize you've been longing for things outside of him. You've been longing for love from other places. You've been trying to find peace somewhere. You've been trying to find security. And in all of that, Jesus is crying out, I am he. Look to me. That's what God is trying to tell us in the first of these commandments. Underneath the surface of our brokenness, underneath the things we've done, he says, I know you've worshipped other gods. And I know those gods could never come through on their promises. And man, I don't know what your brokenness looks like tonight, but I do know mine. Like, I know that I'm selfish, lustful, arrogant, prideful jerk who tends to, like, down to the deepest part of me, like, man, I just want to be told that, that I'm not worthless, that I have something to offer. No matter how many times I've tried, I've tried to find that, whether it's through sinning or other people telling me that or whatever, I try to convince myself of that all the time. The only peace I really get is when I can feel God say, no, why? I gave myself for you. You're not worthless. And that's what he's offering to me, each of us in this place this morning. 
He's offering us to bathe ourselves in his love, to take him in, to drink of him, to rest in his work, to let our lives be for him and through him. In that we can find hope, in that we can find peace, and in that we can find love. He shed his blood on the cross so that we could be free from the guilt of our idolatry. His body was broken so that we could be healed. And his father left him hanging alone on the cross so that he could promise us that he will never leave us. The question is, will we believe that this morning and worship that God in everything we do? I believe that if we were fully understand this and truly immerse ourselves in that truth, we will be able to worship him with our entire lives because we're no longer going to have to go trying to search for those things outside of him because we know we have everything we need in him. And in that, our hearts can be changed and we can go out into this world that's so broken and divided and looking for anything, looked for anything to find hope and it's only when we as the church can find everything we need in Christ can we worship him as God and that's why we take communion every week to be reminded of what he's done for us so that we can turn away from the things that our hearts tend to stray towards and trust in what he has done on the cross in our place Yes, we are imperfect. We have sinned. We have worshipped things outside of God. But in his scandalous love, he came down for us, waited for us on the proverbial well and pointed out our sin. But then he says, trust in me. Drink of me. You can be forgiven.